Welcome to the official Warlord Games podcast. My name is Brad, and this is the official podcast for all things Warlord Games. And it has been a while since this show has been on the air uh, due to a variety of uh, hashtag 2020 slash 2021 things. We have not been able to coordinate a few episodes, but fear not, the Warlord Games podcast is officially back and we will have lots of episodes, not just this one, but we have plans for three or four more new episodes coming up in the coming weeks and months content that is already planned that is ready to go so if you are a fan of this show more is coming soon but let's get into today's episode joining me today is the author of one of my favorite new warlord games books now if you've listened to the show before you know that i am a big bolt action fan i am a huge fanboy for all things bolt action and I love the campaign and the theater books that come out for that game. I have them all. I do enjoy playing missions and using units uh, and just covering the battles that are in them. Now, today I'm super excited because not only do I get to chat with an old buddy who I've played many times on the Bolt Action tabletop, but we also get to talk about, literally, in my opinion, one of the better campaign books. And that is saying something because I love them. We're going to talk about the new Italy soft underbelly campaign book. And if we're doing that, of course, we're talking to Rob Vela. Rob, welcome back to the Warlord Games podcast. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. How are you? It is another beautiful day in sunny Melbourne, Australia. Mate. It... Uh, it's gloomy here, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just down the road, right? Just in Sydney here, it's a bit gloomy, a oh. bit dark. Well, uh, let's brighten things up, shall we, with talking about The Soft Underbelly. Now, this is a great book, not only because Warlord dropped it with the new plastic Italian models, which are just brilliant, but this book, and I guess a lot of people, let me start by saying, a lot of people got really excited about this book because they thought it would be all Italy as far as Italian units and the Italian army. But the uh -huh. Italian campaign was huge as far as involving people from all kinds of different nations. There are lots of different German units. We have British units. We have American units. And there are just some really interesting and characterful organizations and units that take part in the battles across the first six months of the uh, Italian campaign that you don't see in other places. And I think this book does a wonderful job of giving us as players, the opportunity to put them on the tabletop. Can you dig into the the soft underbelly book, starting with Operation Husky, which is the Allied invasion into Sicily? Can you dig into what does the soft underbelly book cover? Okay, so yes, as you, as you said, it covers the first six months of the Italian campaign, and I'm including Sicily there as well. So the uh, the Sicilian campaign only lasted a bit over a month. It was quite successful for the Allies. Um, so that's why I think I've, I've heard a few people say, oh, why isn't there that many Italian units in here? How come, why are there more Allied units or, and German units, uh, more Allied and German theatre selectors, sorry? Mm -hmm. um, well, the main reason is the Italians in this book uh, are only covered in Sicily because they surrendered after, after the, the uh, Sicilian campaign. So out of the six months, they... They were only fighting for a bit over a month. Okay, so that's the reason why they're not covered 
as extensively maybe as some of the other nations. Mm -hmm. The other reason is if you look at the British forces and the Commonwealth forces, they're very quite diverse. There's a lot of nations there. uh, Well, into 1944, which we're not covering here, but it got even more diverse. As they were just scraping, scrounging around for more units, because a lot of the, the, the better units, a lot of the veteran units were, were being sent to Britain mm-hmm. in preparation for the, for the overlord landings. So they just needed to find manpower elsewhere. And so they just they, they got it from wherever they could, could find it. So, so yeah, by the end of the, the war, the Italian theatre was extremely diverse. And even, even if, when you look at the, um, the Germans in the Axis, it was, it was very diverse as well. Not in terms of nationality, but in terms of units, mm-hmm. because you had all the you had the Italians as well, which after their surrender in September 1943, pretty much split in two. There, so while there was a, a, a the Italian campaign in progress, there was also an Italian civil war going on. That's right. So you had two factions that split off into pro-Allied and then pro-Axis. Okay, now, so now that's you had actually... all those forces as well. So that's not covered in this book. It's go. going to be covered in the next book. Okay, but yeah, a lot of diversity in this in this theater of operations. And then after Husky, the Italians pretty much had enough. If you look at the campaign, the Sicilian campaign itself, the the Italians in the first few days just got absolutely butchered by the Allies. Okay, the the Allies brought all their firepower to bear on them, and you had you had divisions that lost two thousand two thousand men. 2,000 casualties in one day. Their morale was already poor by that stage of the war because they had lost their entire uh, army in Italy, which was the best army they had in the mm-hmm. field. Their, their morale was completely broken. Civilian and military uh, morale was completely shot up. So at the end of the uh, Sicilian campaign, they were ready to surrender, and they did right at the start of the Italian landings. And this was done in secret. Uh, the, the Allies negotiated with the Italians um, in secret uh, to to uh, establish this surrender, and uh, it was announced just before the the landings in Italy. And there were three land- separate landings there. So, what was the German response to that? Because clearly, they would not enjoy uh, the the as you put it, the soft underbelly being exposed, especially mm-hmm. if the Italians surrender wholesale. Well, look, part of the mentality for for uh, invading Italy and if you look at Churchill's view on it was uh, that it was the soft underbelly that's his famous quote mm-hmm. okay the soft underbelly of the crocodile or the beast mm-hmm. okay he, he, he kind of identified landing in Northwest Europe as being the jaws of the beast mm-hmm. and the and the, the, the Italy being the soft underbelly that was, would be the easier route to to weaken the enemy. But as I talk about in the introduction there, the, the, he wanted to combine that with lots of different landings everywhere in the Mediterranean, I guess. He wanted to, he, he wanted to weaken the Germans bit by bit, okay? Death by a thousand cuts rather than going straight for the juggler, which the Americans wanted to do. So it was a divergence in strategy there and, and ideas. And, but he was completely right about the Italians. They were ready to crumble. So invading Italy was a necessity. They, they had to do it to knock Italy out of the war. But the Germans were very prepared for this. Mm-hmm. Okay, they had a plan. They had everything organized down to the last detail. It's called Operation Axis. But the first sign of trouble, 
they had troops ready to go just to invade Italy and to fill in the void. Okay, so Churchill was right in that, yes, the Italians would crumble, okay, would create opportunity. But I think they underestimated how well the Germans would, would react to the to the Italian surrender. Yeah. And they came in, they swooped down and they just disarmed the whole Italian army. Okay, and they did it so well that they just filled that void in the space of a few hours. Unbelievable. In the space of a day. Yes. It was dramatic. Well, you could see why that the the Allies would think it would be the soft underbelly. I mean, clearly Hitler's Atlantic Wall was a formidable oh, yes. construction. I mean, you just didn't want to charge into that willy-nilly. So they needed uh -huh. to do a few other things. Plus, having done some reading for this episode, I know that, for example, Churchill and some of the other leaders wanted particularly U.S. generals where there was a, a wider variety of personality type to mm. um to get more experience especially working together before tackling a more difficult task quote unquote um mm. of going into mainland Europe so this is an opportunity oh, yes. for american troops particularly the leadership of those uh troops to cut their teeth so to speak to oh, be yes. ready for yes. this the larger task right that's exactly right yeah, and they and i think that's part of the reason why they they went along with the north african adventure because exactly. the americans were keen to go mm -hmm. from 1942 they wanted to attack germany head on in 1942 and the deep landings mm -hmm. proved they weren't ready so and they and it proved they needed to some battle experience as well okay so lo logistically they weren't ready they didn't have the forces yet in 1942 mm -hmm. but the battle experience as well and if you look at North Africa, you know the, the Battle of Kasserine pa Pass and mm -hmm. a few other battles there. They they needed they definitely needed the experience. Uh, Sicily was an, ex an extension of that as well, and you know mm -hmm. what? It was it was a, a testing ground for the for the D-Day landings. Sicily definitely was. It was up to that stage the largest combined operation in history. Yep. Okay, and it was actually a perfect testing ground for the, uh, the D-Day landings, to see what worked, what didn't work, to test their things like vertical envelopment, like testing um, parachute operations. Mm -hmm. Because okay. the largest allied airborne drops um, happened in the run-up to the Primisole Bridge operation, which is covered in this mm. book, um, yes. uh, up until Market Garden. In fact, they used a lot of the same tactics that they used mm -hmm. later unsuccessfully in Market Garden, were used in Italy, uh, particularly, of course, around that same battle, which was, again, jumping ahead, controlling the bridges for a fast, uh, mm. you know, parachute up, dropping paratroopers onto bridges to prevent Germans from destroying them so that, mm. um, you know, or yep. Italians from destroying them so that oh, the yeah. Allied could, uh, you know, shoot forward and grab as much land as possible. And, of course... <clears throat> Not uh, always successful, kind of like Margaret Garden, but anyway. Mm. But it was a, it was, it was amazing. Like, look, it's, I, I, it's actually very comparable to the Normandy landings because mm -hmm. I actually, as you know, I wrote the book on the D Day mm -hmm. for for Warlord, and the comparisons are uncanny. They had a very similar effect uh, when they were landed. In some instances, if if you look at the Bizarre, Bizarre, sorry, a Ridge scenario, mm -hmm. Colonel Gavin. Had no idea where he was for about a day. <laughs> he was completely lost. But they still managed to to get themselves together and to take their objectives. 
right? And the other thing that was very similar to the Normandy landings was just the because they were so scattered. In one way, it was a big disadvantage, right? Because your forces are scattered everywhere. Mm-hmm. But this creates so much chaos for the enemy. Mm-hmm. And they think they think the operation is much bigger yes. than it actually was because this because they're scattered over such a big area. They think there's they've landed like a, a whole army of paratroopers behind their lines, and it created a lot of fear and panic, especially uh, <laughs> when you look at the Italian coastal divisions. Mm-hmm. Okay which pretty much didn't want to be there. They wanted to be at home with their families, the older guys. They're about roughly our age. They didn't want to be there. As they called it a qualified success because a lot of things didn't work mm-hmm. and the friendly fire incidents were crazy. They, they, shot, they got shot up not once but a few times by their own ships and their own anti-aircraft fire and they had suffered so many casualties from friendly fire. Okay, so they, there was all these little quirks and things that they needed to work out. Uh, and they did by the D-Day landings. If you look at the D-Day landings, they worked. So, they were so successful because they, they learned a lot of lessons from landings in North Africa and Sicily. Okay, so and, and Sicily was an improvement over a much greater improvement over the, the torch landings in North Africa. Exactly. So they kept on learning and learning and by D-Day, they, they nailed it pretty much. And that, well, yeah, obviously there were still things that went wrong in D-Day, but generally it was a magnificent achievement. Exactly. And that gives, because it's those hard lessons, a lot of the battles that take place in the Italian campaign, there's, there's a lot of hard-fought conflicts, which, oh. when you translate that to the bolt-action tabletop, means that you can have some great games. So... Let's get back to the book for a second. It is a monster. You put out these huge books, man. So we have 176 pages on this book, and it yeah. is packed, filled with history, with maps. But as always with the campaign books, we have uh, a ton of great historical-based scenarios. Now, I will get to everything else in a second. Fear not, gang. We're going to get to the armies and the new units mm-hmm. and all that good stuff soon. But... 13 new missions, and they are great ones. I particularly love missions, and it's one of my favorite Mm. part of these books. And you've done an excellent job of laying out both the history around each one of the missions, giving us an overview, giving us the objectives, the setups, all the special rules and the units that you need for that. And in some cases, in actually many cases, giving us special units to represent the forces that are actually presented in them. Now, you must have done a ton of research to, to take that six months and narrow it down to 13 solid missions that are of such great quality and detail, man. Um, are there any favorites you have in here? Because I always love oh, to yes. ask that because authors in doing the research always have their favorite couple. Of the 13, what are some of your faves? My favorite, definitely the Crossing the Kalor mm-hmm. uh, scenario. That is definitely my favorite. We had so much fun playtesting this. The, the one thing I'd say, it, it might be a bit hard for people to get eight 105mm guns, mm-hmm. but you could always substitute, I guess. And I think a lot of these scenarios, the one thing I'll say about these scenarios is that they're quite grandiose. Yes. They're big. All right, They're meant for big groups. Okay, And I've done a few things with the rules to help ease that, uh, I guess, uh, because... Uh, 
when you're playing with big groups, it can get a bit chaotic and mm-hmm. where the dice go. So I've done things like separate colored dice for the, and that's not new, but separate, but I've, I've highlighted it and made sure guided people to do that. Yeah. Okay. So every, so there's different forces that come in as reinforcements and this and that historic, it's pretty historical, but um, yeah, so I, I highlight that you need different colored dice for that. But for this scenario, it's it's what I love about it is I think it creates what happened pretty well. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to do a, a lot with the with the scenarios. I really wanted to create the, for lack of a better word, the vibe, the feeling of yeah. of what happened, and the way it happened. Like so, a lot of the forces used in this represent much bigger forces. Yeah. Um, to get the feeling of what happened, I guess. Well, I, one of the reasons I particularly like that is it gives us rules for fording a river because that is actually not a rule in the bolt action book. And I actually mm. have just done a, a whole episode of the other podcast on this network, Cast Dice, where, where we literally talk about how to use terrain in bolt action. And one of the things we talk about is that there just aren't rules about fording rivers or crossing rivers mm. outside of the usual rough ground, difficult terrain, and bridges. So this is actually that wonderful middle ground that I would love to see on a bolt-action tabletop. And bang, here it is in a bolt-action book, and now I know how to play it, which is awesome. It's it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like the the Germans, they have to try and find a way to get across the uh, the river, mm-hmm. and at the same time they're just getting pounded by artillery. So they're having to fight the Americans, which are on the other side of the river. And at the same time, they're trying to find a way across, and they're trying to get their tanks across desperately. Mm-hmm. There's another, there's another dimension to it as well. There, there's the the bridges, mm-hmm. which start the game intact, but they've got engineers with um, they have wired up the bridges. They're more than likely to blow them up before the tanks get there. But there's mm-hmm. a there's a possibility they might be able to get across as well, and there's also the possibility they might be they might be stuck on the bridge and get blown up mm-hmm. on the bridge. So. There's a lot of fun as- aspects to it, and and uh, we just we had a, a great time playing it. We just we had a ball, yeah. We had a good lot of fun. Yeah, because you, I mean, you don't just arbitrarily write these based on history. You actually play test this. You have a play test group, and you run through yes. these prior to publication. A very good play test group, an excellent play test group. They give me so much good feedback. Uh, I have to say, um, yeah, definitely, yeah. We, I, you have to, you really have to play test them. Mm-hmm. properly uh, otherwise uh, you're not going to get what you want out no. of the scenario exactly right yes well Rob some of the missions in here are different from things we've seen in the past because we have missions that sort of rely on delaying actions can you give us a little more detail about that because it is an interesting new look at how you play bolt action well this this period of the Italian campaign is Mostly delaying actions, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Sicily and in the uh, Italian mainland, what Kesselring really wanted to do was to slow down the. Uh, this was his main strategy. He wanted to slow and delay the the Allied advance, mm-hmm. and to this degree, Monty kind of helped him because he wasn't the most aggressive commander. No, he wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, he wanted to to stall them and to delay them until he could construct a extensive defensive lines. To hold them in place, which is pretty much what happened at Casino, mm-hmm. which which would delay the Allies for almost half a year. That's why 
there are two scenarios in here that are really focused on that. There's one uh, in Sicily, which was which is the uh, yes escape from uh, Triana, mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest battles in, in the Sicilian camp. It's one of the most bloodiest battles. So what you have to do, this is very, I find it very interesting. What you mm-hmm. have to do here, there's two objectives in the center of the town, okay, that the Germans have to hold, but at the same time, they need to get their forces out of there. They need to escape as well. So they're, they're like uh, the rear guard. Okay, so, and you have elements of um, three different regiments, mm-hmm. American regiments that are coming onto the table and trying to take the town and stop them from escaping. All right, so as the, the game unfolds, the objectives are worth three points, mm-hmm. okay, to hold. Okay, but it's also three points for each unit the, uh, the Germans uh, get off the board. Ooh. Okay, but they can't start getting units off the board until turn four. And so they're actually not allowed to. So the Germans get points for um, holding the objectives, and you score these points for holding the objectives at different points in the game. So on turn two, turn four, and turn six, Brilliant. you score points for holding these objectives. At the same time, they want to get their troops out, but they want to hold these objectives as long as possible because they're scored as the game progresses. I love it. You're forcing people to make those hard choices, and meanwhile, the yes. allied players are trying to stop them. Brilliant. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, the allies also get points for destroying units. They get two points for each unit they destroy. Uh, and the, 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 the American uh, units are coming on at different points in the table mm-hmm. and at different times as well. It escalates in that way, and yeah, so it's a lot of fun. It's and it's challenging. It's quite a challenging scenario. The second one, it's just called basically delay the enemy, and that's what you have to do. And this this one is it's very structured. Okay, you know the German forces are, are laid out mm-hmm. in detail, so you actually don't select anything yourself. Everything is there. It offers the attacker the ability to, to know where everything's going to be, but it's kind of like a gauntlet they have to get through, and they have to get to the other side, and they're playing long ways as well. So they have to get through just a lot of obstacles to get to the other side in time. And uh, the way this one works is you score points for getting units off the table if you're allied, but the quicker you get them off, the more, the more points you get. Okay, So you get three points, Three victory points for every unit you get off prior to the end of turn nine. Two victory points for every unit you get off uh, on turn 10. Then one for every unit you get off on turn 11. So you're racing against the clock there. That's so cool. Uh, the Germans get one victory point for each unit they destroy. Well, they st- well actually, it's for every unit they stop from getting off the table's edge. Mm-hmm. For the uh, defender's edge, including destroyed units. Yeah. Well, that will give you a very different bolt-action gaming experience than you would get in a lot of other scenarios, right? Yeah, so they, there's pretty much two, two ways you can go to... Uh, so you, can go, you can go through the minefields and you can go through the wire or you can, go, uh, you can go through the open area, which is further from places you can actually get cover. Yeah. So you have to weigh that, those two things up as well. So, And it's interesting the what we found when we play Tesla, it's interesting to see which, which way people go there. Any spoilers about which, uh, which is quote unquote easier or, uh, do people have to find that I out think, the hard way? 
I think they're both hard. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. think they're both hard. Yeah. I was going to say, they, neither one of them sounds particularly easy. Um, Rob, I got to say, when reading this book, one of the things, as I said earlier, that I'm so excited about is the in, or the inclusion of a lot of those interesting units that aren't particularly covered in other campaign books or we don't see on the bolt-action tabletop in other places. And one of the those units that I really like, and I know it's been mentioned and I know they appear in a few other places, but one that is particularly covered in this book and especially has its own scenario is the Devil's Brigade. Can oh, you get yes. into the Devil's Brigade mission? Because it is cool, and I don't want to say the name. <laughs> Monte la Defensa. Yes. <laughs> I'll say it. Okay. Um, well, growing up as a kid, one of my favorite war movies was The Devil's Brigade. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a fun movie. It's a brilliant movie. They get so much stuff in the movie wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's so many misconceptions about The Devil's Brigade in the movie. But it's still a great movie. It's one of my still one of my favorite movies. And so I had to I had to cover them in this book. We, who wouldn't? You, you have you, you're going to cover them. It's, they're so um, they're so interesting. But yeah. this is a smaller battle, right? You've mentioned some of the grander scenarios, and we're going to get to an even bigger one yes. in a second. But this is on a four by four table, um, yes. and one of the highlights of this particular mission is stealth. Talk yes. us through that. Well, yeah, it's a theme in this book uh, that I tried to, to bring out with not only the Devil's Brigade, but with a few different units. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so pretty much uh, in the first few turns, the Germans are getting pounded by artillery. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you've seen the movie, the movie oh, yeah. kind of covers this. They are totally unaware that the Devil's Brigade have actually climbed the mountain and are, and are behind them because they thought it wasn't was not possible. I'll just talk a little bit about the strategic importance of La Defensa because yeah. it was well the I'll talk a little about the about the winter line okay at the end of 1943 mm-hmm. so one of the they had few ways to get across this mountain range the uh, nine mountains okay one avenue was called the Mignano Gap mm-hmm. and both sides of this gap were surrounded by mountains mountain peaks to the south were a few um it's called a Camino Massive. Low Defensa was pretty much the key to the whole massive. In November, they tried to to get up there and they, they tried to take it in a frontal assault, mm-hmm. failed miserably, and they were up against very elite troops. The 15th Panzer Grenadier Division was a mm-hmm. very elite unit. And um, yeah, so that failed and they brought the Devil's Brigade in, which, which arrived just before, not long before. And they were pretty much specialists in mountain warfare, specialists in a lot of types of warfare. They, I was they, they say, were pretty yeah, much not just yeah. mountain warfare. Oh, yeah. They, they were the precursor of the, the Green Berets, pretty much. Yeah. The, Bream, the Green Berets, the modern Green Berets, are modeled, were modeled when they were established on the Devil's Brigade. But what they did was they were, they were great at scouting as well, and they had so many, they were trained in so many methods of warfare warfare um uh so but what they did was they actually found a, a route to get to the top but it was sheer cliff face mm-hmm. but they thought they could do it, and they actually got there undetected and so the germans had no idea they were there and they scaled it and they and they got behind the enemy and the the germans only left one century there because they were just so convinced no one would would take that route one century that's crazy yeah 
so yeah, that, that was completely surprised. So one of the mechanisms in this scenario is they can the the Devil's Brigade can move in silence. So in the first few turns, they're actually getting into position. Okay, using stealth, they can be they can be found out by the Germans. Okay, so there's a special rule where every time the the Devil's Brigade move, a dice is rolled, and uh, they can be detected. That's right. And when they're detected, the whole thing, the whole hell breaks loose, and the, mm. the battle starts. So that's one of the main mechanisms. Now these scouts, they're harder to detect. Yeah. So there's uh, the F F uh, SS F scouts that are very hard to detect. So it's actually when they they are detected, the Germans actually have to re-roll a dice for them, and uh, it's a 50-50 roll. So yeah, but once they once they do that, they have to um, either destroy the Germans, get them down to a certain amount of units, or push them onto the uh, furthest quarter of the table and contain them there, where they surrender. So yeah, it's 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 all about stealth. Now, I did mention a grandiose scenario at some point. Uh, yes. would you, shall we talk into the club-level scenario that you've included that is yes. just a little bit bigger than what people might normally play on the tabletop? It's massive. It's massive. When we right. play-tested it, it went, it went, it went for a, a whole afternoon, and we had a ball. We had a good time. It's uh, the tamale scenario, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's interesting. Briefly, I'll just go over the history there. Mm-hmm. Monty envisaged an end run around the German lines because uh, you know it was at this time it was autumn, and the the rivers were bloated with rain and uh, and flooding. Okay, so they were very difficult to cross, which was a very common thing in Italy. All these all these fast flowing rivers flowing down from the mountains into the ocean were a major obstacle, and in the autumn months where you had torrential rain all the time in Italy, they would just bloat and just flood yeah so to avoid it he landed troops behind enemy line so a, a pretty elite contingent of uh commandos and troops from the uh the 78th uh infantry division which was a very a very good division but kesselring reacted quite quickly and he sent the the 15th uh, the 16th panzer Grenadier division which which was an amazing unit pretty much it was if you look at the uh, when i talk about salerno mm-hmm they contained three times the amount of troops they had with with that with their one division, and they ripped units apart. And in the opening stages of this battle, they did the same thing. They just they just charged in there and they just create just caused hell. And they they almost drove them back into the town. They and they they threatened to to drive them across back across the the Buffalo River as well. But um. The time the arrival of the Irish Brigade mm-hmm. <laughs> saved the day. Okay, and that's what I try and capture in this scenario. That the the Irish has lots of different elements in this in this scenario. You start with the the forces on the table. You've got two camp groups, so like the lead elements of them. That's right. Then you've got the British with Chavas Force and elements of the uh, 78th uh, Division. Okay, and slowly the Allies get the Germans stay with those units. But the Allies slowly get re- reserves to try and slow the momentum and eventually push it back. Okay, so there's three objectives in the scenario. I think the one in the town is worth, here we go, is worth two points. And the other two objectives are worth one point each. Now, 
what makes this interesting is how how big the map is. It's a huge map. So there's the, the forces involved in this are huge. There's thousands of points. Yeah. Okay, that's why it's meant for a, a bigger group. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you you can you can get a lot of people involved in it. You can you can have two two people controlling the Germans, and uh, if you look at the British, they've got like three or four separate forces. Yeah. So you can get six people playing. Right. So yes, the board is eighteen by four, <laughs> four feet yeah. that you play on. You've got two objectives that are quite close together. You got the Timor, the Timorli one, the port itself, mm-hmm. which is worth two points. And you've got the brick factory, but then you've got another one, the town of uh, San Giancomo, mm-hmm. which is all the way on the on the uh, on the flank there. So you have to weigh up. Okay, am I going to just go for those two objectives? Just go all out of those two objectives up, up the up there and there, or do I want to get that extra point, which is way over there? Yeah. Am I just going to surrender it to the other guys? So, yeah, all these things come into play. And so, yeah, and the Germans, their speed is important because they need to outrun the Allied reinforcements. So they just need to make their breakthrough and they need to hold the, the objectives before they get overwhelmed by the, um, the Allied reinforcements. Well, Rob, let's jump back a sec to Devil's Brigade because I want to start digging into some of the units and some of the armies that appear in this book that we have not seen in such depth previously. Now, the Devil's Brigade has been mentioned in other books, but one of the things I really like about this book is it gives you the ability to take a force that is really original and plays a lot differently from the the host nation, so to speak, mm-hmm. that you would normally see in a generic reinforced platoon. For example, we see armies like Popsky's Private Army. We see a different way to play commandos and we've seen some commando armies in the past but we see a very different commando army in this list and we'll get to that in a minute but we also have the rdtx um, the italian commandos we also have about a million different flavors of commonwealth troops and just particularly around the the commonwealth troops and the devil's brigade and a few other particular armies in here Sometimes it can be really exciting to see these new forces with these new rules in a book, but sometimes you go, well, am I really going to paint an entire army of this? Like, there are so many great nations out there, it can be hard to choose what you're going to buy and paint next. But what's really cool is, in, in reading this book and when talking with you today, I realized that my existing American army, just by go- doing a quick Google search of the Devil's Brigade uniforms, for example— I realized that other than the distinctive red badge on their shoulder, they're wearing generic U.S. infantry uniforms. So I can actually use my existing American army to play a Devil's Brigade force using the rules out of this book as painted right now. And I think that's really exciting because it gives us as players the opportunity to field the armies that we already have it gives us a chance to play them in a new and exciting way. And that is particularly useful as far as this book goes. Um, because, And this book does repeat a couple of units that have appeared in other books. Because uh-huh. you don't have to buy those other books to use the units that line up with the scenarios, if that makes sense. So yes. not only do you get everything you need to play outside of the core rule book, the armies of book, which you'd need anyway... 
and this book. You don't have to buy a bunch of other campaign books to get everything you need to play. It's all here. But mm-hmm. you've included a really important sentence before a lot of the units, which is these units can be used in a generic reinforced platoon. Now, what that means is for tournament players or for people yes. who like to play in events, Warlord mm-hmm. has put out a, uh, a tournament pack that if your tournament organizer is using states that you cannot use campaign theater selectors. You have mm-hmm. to use generic reinforced platoons. Well, you can use a lot of the units in this book, even if they've sometimes appeared in other books in the past, but yeah. now you can use them in a generic reinforced platoon because it literally has that important line. They are cleared for generic reinforced platoon play. So this book gives, particularly those of us who are more event inclined, it gives us a wider, a wider variety of both armies to play and units within those armies uh, that we can add on the tabletop, which is really exciting. So this is really cool, man. Yeah, I think uh, the main reason why they um, kept theater selectors out of tournaments is I think mainly um, some of the special rules mm-hmm. that come with these um, theater selectors in these campaign books. Absolutely. So the ability to be able to add the units into your reinforced platoon is, I think, something a lot of people wanted. They, they wanted it clarified. Mm-hmm. In this book, it has the units in this book have been clarified, so it tells you where they can they, they can be taken, and even even in some of the the theater selectors in the armies of books, they, it tells you where you, that you can take these units in some of those theater selectors as well. So exactly. they're included as well. Yes. Yeah, it's really exciting. I think that really value adds for those of you who are well, do I get this book or don't I get this book? That it is a huge selling point for me. Because not only, it's like the double shot. Not only does it help you if you're an event player to give you more units that you can put in your army without necessarily, how should I say, breaking how to play a competitive game, Mm. right? Because there are new interesting units that have their own rules that expands the way that you can play the game on the tabletop. But and the, you, imp- the important, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Please. And the important thing too is like all these units are pointed, so they have all these fancy rules. Exactly. But you have to pay for them, so I think that, that balances out. I completely agree, and we're going to get to that when we start digging into the units. But again, it also is really exciting that it gives you the opportunity to play a lot of really cool, new, interesting armies using the models that you already have painted, which is just awesome. Well, let's get into that. Let's dig into yes. the Devil's Brigade in particular, because clearly I just brought up that I'm excited about playing those because I already have an army, a painted army that works for that. What makes the Devil Brigade different oh. than standard American troops in this book? They are so unique and so different. Uh, they, are, they really are. One of the most unique things is it wasn't just made up of Americans. It was made up of Americans and Canadians. It was right. a multinational mm-hmm. unit, which is which was quite rare. Mm-hmm. Okay, especially in a time when a lot of um, even in multicultural societies, well, not uh, we, the melting pot in America, they still yeah. had army. You still had an army that was segregated. Yes. Right. So, but this is a, a multinational army. So not only did it have people. Uh, had people from two different countries That's right. in the, in the one unit. Another special thing about them is they'll trained in so many different methods and so many mm-hmm. different types of warfare. 
even amphibious parachute training, mountain warfare, ski skiing warfare, um, name it. They they were trained in it. They were, they were the most one of the most uh, trained units in the entire war. So and they and they another the, the other thing too that makes them unique is their weapons as well. They had unique weapons which you you'll see in the actually which you will see in the uh, actual unit itself. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. they're able to, and now you mentioned that cross-training, and particularly around mountaineering, that plays into their special rules, right? Mm-hmm. They're able yes. to ne- ne- negotiate difficult terrain, uh, unlike most other units in the game, in that if you give them a run order and they're going through difficult terrain, that they can move nine instead of six. Yes, um, that's right. Which is huge. You may not think it's oh, it's only three inches, but man, difficult no. terrain can really yeah. slow you down on the bolt action tabletop. And having that three extra three inches for run, gotta remember that includes if you are quote unquote charging someone, if you're assaulting someone, that that's an extra three inches. Yes, that's huge. Not to mention bolt action is a game of objectives. Being able to move three inches through difficult terrain when your opponent may not be able to do that. That's big, right? Yeah. And they're, they're not supermen. The terrain still affects them. Exactly. But they're not going to just run clear through it. Uh, but, they, it's, it, but they still have an advantage over other units not trained in that type of warfare. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and they can scale. Look, this is one thing. I, this is one goal I had with this book. Okay. There, there, are, th- there are so many cool rules mm-hmm. in the main rule book that just aren't used. Or there's types of terrain that aren't used because it's just easier, right. and the game the game doesn't like you can avoid them very easily. Yeah. yeah. So if you've got units that actually interact with impassable terrain, you're going to put more impassable terrain on the table. You're gonna you're gonna have those elements. If you have if you have units that um, are good at night operations, and there's rules that give them benefit during night, you're going to use the night rules more. That's right. Okay, so I tried to do that with a D-Day book. I had a lot of scenarios that were at night because, you know, obviously the, the parachute landings were conducted at night. But I, I think in this book I've added them to the units and to the reinforced platoons. So they're actually more more of a part of the game. If you look at the Devil's Brigade, uh, sorry, no, the I think the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the Rangers, reinforced Darby's platoon. Darby's Rangers, yep. Yep, they uh, they can opt to attack at night, mm-hmm. and they actually have a special rule, which gets lets them see better at night. That's and right. the commandos commandos have the same rule, uh, but they've got suppressed weapons, yeah. which means they don't get the muzzle muzzle flashes. But I'm 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 getting sidetracked here. Let's get back to Devil's Brigade. But well, I I want to bring <laughs> up something you said earlier. You've included yep. a lot of cool new rules that really gives units that individual flavor but you've pointed them appropriately. So it's yes. not like you're getting some crazy new unit that really doesn't work in a that might blow out a game if you're playing in yes. a generic reinforced platoon just standard game. You can use these units. They're pointed appropriately so it's fair, it's even. So people can really add the flavor to their existing armies, but it isn't going to yes. break the game so to speak. But you've you've included. Let's get back to the FSS section. Sorry, the FSSF section. It's and hard let, to say. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll say that three times fast. Devil Brigade. <laughs> Not only do they have the move through cover, 
But they have a really cool new gun. Now, of course, you can give them bars because they were typically um, equipped by the U.S., but Mm. they also have the Johnson LMG, which is a new gun in bolt action and is basically almost like a more automatic, shorter-range bar, um, which is so cool, right? It's something that they used on the table or in the in the actual war and it allows you to finally put it on the tabletop it's so well, rad. yeah the the design was was very unique it was it's was, it was called a light machine gun but it was so compact mm-hmm. and light that uh you could you could use it like a bar it could probably it was probably light it was more easy to use than a bar really it was kind of more like an assault rifle in a way but it did have i think it did have a longer barrel so uh, but yeah but so it's got the range of a of a um of a, a rifle Okay, but it gets an extra shot, and it's got, it gets the automatic rifle rule. Okay, and it does benefit from fire and maneuver as well. Now, okay, for those so. of you who are thinking, now, that's great, but you talked a second ago about using models that you already have, and th- this isn't in the box. You could probably get away with cutting back a little bit of the barrel of a uh, bar and add a clip on the side and you could probably just mm. say given the scale of the models oh, yeah. that that's a johnson and it would be very cool yeah yeah and uh, i think it, it was interesting what you said about you know being able to use uh, you know your, your old models and stuff but i think with the devil's brigade you, you could do that but you could also add their own flair like yeah. uh, as well because like, they did have unique jackets and stuff like that that they they wear that they, they wore as well so with fur jackets and stuff like mm-hmm. that so you can make them unique as well you could do both exactly yeah, right both worlds there yes yeah those modeling opportunities are fantastic and you could use some of the warlord games uh winter american models particularly well for that mm. um but let's let's get in now these guys have access to a new bit of equipment and kit besides the johnson that you've included in units for I believe all four nations in this that are covered in this book, that would be the Italians, the Germans, the Americans, and the Commonwealth. And that is a really cool new piece of equipment called Demolition Charges. Now, oh, yes. rather than covering this later, I thought <coughs> as soon as we actually covered it in a unit, I'd bring these up. Now, Demolition Charges are one of those things that look fantastic on paper, but as we've talked about off-air, as experienced bolt-action players, I think they're almost a bit of a trap for new players because they require mm. finesse. Can you they get do. into how demolition charges work? Because they're really cool, but I think they're also not the easiest thing in the world to use because I think they're going to make you really hard. Uh, a really big target on the tabletop, I think, is what I'm trying yes. to say. Yeah, look, you have to set it up really well. Like right. you. You have to like pin the enemy down. You have to set everything up, and you have to get into the right position. So, to use a demolition, demolition charge or a Bangalore t- torpedo, uh, well, we'll just stick to the demolition charge because yeah. it's a little bit different. Um, you have to start adjacent, adjacent to the the target at the start of the turn, and you need to advance away. Okay, so you'd have to end the last turn next adjacent to uh, the the target. And at the start of the next turn, to actually uh, detonate it, you'd have to move outside of four inches of the target to actually detonate it. And that's because it has a four-inch blast radius. It has a massive four-inch blast radius. So it's almost like getting hit by a heavy howitzer for whatever it is. If you're trying to destroy a building, if you're trying to wreck a tank, if you're trying to um, blow up some entrenched troops, 
But again, you have to end a turn next to that thing, and then you have to start the turn running away from it because you've set the demolition charge, and now you're running away before it blows you up, right? But that means that you are standing there. You haven't gone down. You're probably out there in the open. You're going to be a giant target because your opponent is not going to want you to blow that up. They'll try every every possible way to stop you. Yeah. I that, exactly out of everything in this book, that is on the top three things that I cannot wait to try is uh putting some demolition charges in and just seeing what happens on the tabletop when people have the option. Because mm-hmm. um spoilers, as someone who likes to run big cats in my German army, I love to drop buildings. Um, be it my <laughs> Sturm Tiger, I have a beautifully painted warlord Sturm Tiger that I love to fire that giant gun and blow up buildings with my opponent's squads in them and or just driving through those Mm. buildings love it and this just gives me a new way to blow up a building did you ever play did you ever play the computer game company of heroes i didn't but i've heard that i would love that (laughs) it was one of my favorite things in the game we had these commandos (laughs) running around and Mm -hmm. engineers with demolition charges charges and you'd have to charge up to the building set it up and just get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Exactly. So uh, I was, was, yeah, partly inspired by that, but yeah. So it was one of the most fun, it was the most fun things about that game. So I I really wanted to have that, capture that feeling in bolt action as well. Well, bolt action has been called the quote unquote Hollywood rule set, right? And, And I don't see that as a bad thing. I actually see that as a good thing. It allows you to play out those cinematic moments in World War II mm. movies and television shows that we all know and love. It allows us to put it on the tabletop in a fun way. Exactly. And I think exactly. how many times have you seen in a commando movie or in a World War II movie where yes. people have gone up, set the explosives, and then run? And how many times have I played a game of bolt action thinking, how cool would it be if I could do that? And now I can. It's awesome. Yeah, and then when the explosion goes off, they go flying through the air. Exactly, right? <laughs> you having the old moment, springboards right? <laughs> and the built into the floor and having them fling up A-team style. Love it. Yeah, yeah Nicholas Cage and Wind Talkers. Yes, exactly, that, right? You well, want that moment. Well, let's talk about Bangalore torpedoes because you mentioned those earlier. And though they are slightly similar to what you've done with the demolition charges – they are a much more specific tool to eliminate light terrain on the tabletop, yeah. which is, again, not something that you typically have been able to do on the bolt-action tabletop previously. Can you talk a little bit about how the Bangalores work? Oh, yeah. So if you've got something that's blocking your path or slowing your path, barbed wire, etc., okay, and you want a move to move you know, a few units through it, okay, Bangalore torpedoes clear the obstacle. Now, this is not new. Both, I think both the demolition charges and the Bangalore torpedoes were in the D-Day book. Yes. But I made them generic in this one. Yeah, so they, they, they can clear the path. Okay, because if, you, you know, if maybe if you've only got like one unit passing through, you know, you, you probably wouldn't bother using it. But like if you've got no. a whole force, like a, a big push that you want to get through, if they, can, if they can clear the way, they can get ahead and clear the way. It could it could have an impact, yeah. So they they worth ten points. Could have a good impact um, to to clear the way exactly. for your advance. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about some of these other special units that appear in this book. Let's talk about the Rangers because you did mention Darby's Rangers, aka uh-huh. the Black Death, aka X Force. X Force. The coolest <laughs> names for a unit ever. Uh, and I, yes, right. I know we've seen those names in other places, but. 
How cool would it be if that was your unit? Anyway, um, talk to us about yes, how X-Force. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about how Darby's Rangers are different from regular Rangers because they are significantly different than your quote-unquote plain vanilla Ranger Force that you get out of the, the U- regular armies of the U.S. book. The big thing is um, well, they've got they've got the same Rangers lead the way special rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you combine that with acne carry training, mm-hmm. it makes that even more potent because they can they can run the uh, nine inches through rough terrain, so they can get into tough tough uh, terrain, a hard terrain, and uh, and do it quickly and get get into the good positions. That's right. Quite quite quickly. Um, they're very um, good at night operations as well. They were historically, as were the commandos. Using stealth, you know, so mm-hmm. um, they get the light recognition special rule for, for night operations. Okay, and as I mentioned too, you've got to link this to the reinforced platoon where they get the option to attack at night. Okay, so, and look, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. No, exactly. But uh, I find the night fighting rules really interesting. I love the night fighting rules. And I think that once you get used to them, it just becomes another part of the game. It, exactly. just, it, it just flows pretty well. It becomes very uh, natural, so I would I would like to see more night fighting going on on, mm-hmm. in bolt, on bolt action tables. That's one of the reasons why I've done that. Okay, and it gives them a, a a different edge and it makes them interesting as well. So uh, they have tough fighters and they're expensive though. Sixteen, yeah, they really are. But they have a they but they not only are they expensive, you can really tool them up in a variety of different yeah. ways to make them more expensive. But they're one of those great toolbox units where exactly. if you have an existing American army and you need a particular tool to accomplish or two squads, um, and if you have some points to play with, this is a great squad to add. Well, that's that's what special forces are all about. Right. They're about being that tool that you need mm-hmm. in cer- at certain times. So uh, that's that's why they specialize and, they're, they're, and they're, they have specialized training. That's right. Well, let's yeah. let's talk about the 82nd Airborne because we've seen a lot of U.S. Airborne troops previously. Yeah. We've even seen glider engineer squads or glider squads mm. previously. So in this book, we get um, some new units to represent your American Airborne or paratrooper slash glider squads. Um, what mm. makes these different? Well, I've Pretty much, uh, I think I mentioned it in a little blurb there. Yes. They had they had two different distinctive types of engineer units, the, uh, the paratroopers. They had the parachute engineers and they had the glider, and they're actually equipped differently. Yes. So one one had flamethrowers and the other one um, had light machine guns. Mm-hmm. So, But I've, I've merged them together, so you've got both options. So you can make them. So I'll put it in the blurb so you can you can distinguish between the two, and choose which one you want to go with. But yeah, but then they got their demolition charges and the Bangalore torpedo options as well, which all the engineer units in this book do. Yeah. Now, and they get stubborn as well. Okay. So it's one thing that kind of has irked me a bit, but I think it's irked other people as well. Is that they that you know other paratrooper forces get stubborn mm-hmm. and in in the in in uh in the book they in the American book they don't yeah and they really deserve to I think they do deserve to have stubborn if you look at Bizarro Ridge and some of the engagements they had in Sicily which was their first major operation 
they performed brilliantly. Like they they was they they were getting attacked by tigers and mm-hmm. just getting pounded, and they held their ground. So they really deserve it. They they do deserve stubborn. Now that stubborn does appear on a couple of U.S. airborne units across yeah. the different books. Um, but yes. again, this gives you the opportunity to have it all in one book if this is the only book you buy. Um, sure. But it also lets you take it in generic reinforced platoons if in some of those yes. other books yes. they don't say that. That's now, right. I have heard some American players uh, bemoaning the fact that Germans have have the ability to take motorized infantry squads where they can mm. uh, with that rule that makes it easier for troops to mount up and dismount from vehicles, transport vehicles. Um, we see that with some of the Panzer Grenadier squads. Yeah. We see it in some of the squads that are included in the Fortress Budapest book. But in this book, we have the infantry squads for Americans, just generic, inexperienced, regular, or veteran squads. You can yes. take them in American armies now. Uh, and again, that is something that you can put in a standard reinforced platoon. And those are just yes. like your usual American squads, except they benefit from the motor- motorized infantry rule, which allows people to reroll failed order tests when they're mounting up or dismounting from a transport vehicle. And as someone who loves a transport vehicle, let me tell you, that's a great Oh, rule. yeah. Oh, um, yeah. You the, do. You do. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, the only <laughs> thing is these squads are slightly smaller uh, than what you would normally see in an American squad because they have to fit in said vehicle, right? And they have no bars. Exactly. Yes, good point. <laughs> they do. But they do have the option for light machine guns. So they are. Yes. Uh, but again, that just matches up with what they actually had in the field. Exactly. And I think it's a great ad for this book. Yeah. And yeah, can't claim credit for that rule. It's Brian Cook's rule that, that he created. It's a fantastic rule. And so, yeah, it's in there. But again, it's that consistency between books, so people who have yes. seen it in one place can now take it and use it in exactly. their army as well, which is just great. Now, yeah, so you, you do want to consolidate good rules like that, right? Across exactly. The, across. We have talked a little bit about the British. Now, if we jump from across all the campaign books, across all the theater books that we've seen previously from Warlord, there have been quite a few different iterations of Commonwealth troop rules. And in some cases, those haven't necessarily been, A, applicable in reinforced platoons, but also, B, they're not always consistent. Now, in this book, you have done a wonderful job of pulling them all together in one place and making them official as far as people being able to play different versions of the commonwealth using slightly different versions of the national rules yes um but you're very clear and consistent about how those are applied across armies so it's not necessarily breakable Mm. can you talk to a little talk to us a little bit about that process because i know a lot of this comes from other places but consolidating it and making sure that it is fair and clear i'm sure must have been a task given that those rules are all over the place yeah, um, the national characteristics. It was a good rule for the British book because it allowed you to have, you know, Commonwealth forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and different uh, flavor of forces. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, for the Commonwealth. But I wanted to kind of the problem. The problem with that rule for me was that um, you can have like a, a reinforced platoon that had one of those uh, national characteristics that didn't really match 
all the units you had in your force. So you could have like Gurkhas with, with British troops or you know, commandos and stuff, but they had this one national characteristic for all of them, which to my own mind just didn't work well and like them- thematically. Yeah. So what I've done here is I've given each nationality in the book their own uh, their own flavor and their own rule, which is mainly from the national characteristics. So there's less complication, mm-hmm. but some are new as well. And it allows you to have the mixed platoons with the different national characteristics as well. Right, okay. but you don't get the benefits across all of them. It allows you to differentiate those. You, because yes. a lot of times those forces did appear um, mixed together on yes. In, yes. in battles. And so it That's allows right. you to feel that that on the tabletop, but in a way that is fair and represents each of those units having different rules in a sensible way, if that makes sense. Yes, and uh, people are very familiar with the national characteristic rules, so that's why I tried to stick to those. Mm-hmm. In some cases, I've created new things, but mm-hmm. yeah, so it, so it is less complicated because it, it can, you know, if you've got a few different forces in, in one reinforced platoon, yeah. there, are a few, there are a few different rules there. But if you know them well, yeah, it's you get used to it. Well, I love that you've included the rules. Now we have national rules for the Scots. And as I'm married to a, <laughs> a very pr- a proud Glaswegian, uh, being able to add a bagpipe to my existing British army might be something that I do shortly because it really is cool and adds a new <laughs> yes. way. Again, all you need is a generically painted British army, add a bagpipe, and... Bob's your uncle, so to speak. Yeah. You're ready and to you, go. And you know, in, in the D-Day book, I had a bagpiper in there as well. I you love, did. You did. I love bagpipers, and I love all that stuff. I go mm-hmm. to the um, military tattoo mm-hmm. when it comes here to Australia. I, I love all that stuff. Exactly. So, and yeah, it's very it's very Scottish, and if you're going to have a, something that represents the Scottish, you, you, you have to have bagpipes, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, man, there's there's so many great, rules in here um, as far as in units. I mean, we have, and I'm just going to skim through some of these because yes, we're running yeah. a little long, but yes. we have Irish infantry much, squads, <laughs> we have guards, infantry squads, infantry, uh, sorry, Indian infantry squads, Canadian yes. infantry squads, Canadian engineers. There are just tons. But we also see more specific Commonwealth troops in the form of, um, we see paratroopers, and we see, and I know you're going to want to talk about this. I know <laughs> yet another <laughs> yes. commando list. Now, yes, um, people, people are commandoed out. That's what I heard. Yeah, people, people keep saying, oh, not another commando list. But this <laughs> is very different from, quote-unquote, other commandos, be them the generic, quote-unquote, vanilla uh, commando squads we see in the British book, The Armies of Great Britain, but also in some of the other theater selector books. These are very different. Not only do we finally get like really good rules for the Royal Marine Commandos, which are different, but we also get uh, some great new and different commando rules. How are these commandos different than the other commandos we've seen previously? I think uh, the, the usual version of the commandos in the bolt-action books, the assault troops, exactly, which they were in the latter part of the war. They were assault troops, vicious assault troops, they were very good assault troops, but there's all the what what the, all that stuff misses is the field craft mm-hmm. of the commandos. What the what were their strengths? You know, the the real strengths were they were very stealthy. They were very hard to 
to to um they were very good at camouflaging themselves. They had all the field craft. They were good at traversing terrain, okay, and surviving in the wilderness, and all these all these types of things, okay. So and it, it, I've used the hidden special rule mm-hmm. to bring that out. And uh, I've heard some people say, "Oh, yeah, hidden's not reused that much and all that." But I, if you look at the scenarios, mm-hmm. the majority, the vast majority of the scenarios have the hidden rules in there. That's right. So. Um, so they're very hard to spot, okay? But then you've got also got the suppressed weapons yeah, as well. So the, you can have them with one with only one unit because they weren't that uh, widespread. Mm-hmm. It's silenced weapons, okay, which allows them to stay hidden when they fire. Now, it is a short-range weapon, okay, but the fact that they are hard to spot means you actually have to get quite close in. So they could actually be immune to fire for a while and spray away with their weapons if you play if you if you play it well anyway so um yeah and they've so they've got masters of concealment makes them hard to spot mm-hmm. for all any type of unit so recon units all all types of units okay they've got an extra nco which makes them hardier morale wise mm-hmm. okay you take out one of the ncos with a sniper they've got another one they've got the demolition charges they were trained to use explosives, especially earlier in the war when they were, mm-hmm. when they were, when they were the, uh, the uh, convert, covert, sorry, yep. operations. Um, they got acne carry training. Now there is a little bit of difference between acne carry training and the the, uh, the mountain warriors and Freddy's freighters special rule, and that they can traverse any type of impassable terrain. Those those other special rules focus mainly on vertical pieces of terrain so hills and mountains and high pieces of terrain mm-hmm. with the acne carry training you can you can cross rivers you can cross all sorts of terrain Brilliant. so it's actually a little bit different yeah so and the with these with the suppressed weapons you can it also nullifies the muzzle flashes special rule mm-hmm. as well so they're good at night and they have the option in the reinforced platoon commando reinforced platoon to attack at night so if they're attacking if they attack in the scenario they have the option to attack at night Brilliant. And yeah. nothing looks cooler than a suppressed Sten. I'm just trying to figure out how I can convert those because they look so cool. Google search it, kids, if you didn't know what they look like already. Yeah. Oh. Another unit that's in here that hasn't been in other books that I'm aware of is, but I've heard of in the past is, I'm very excited to finally get, Popsky's Private Army. <laughs> yes. Uh, right? Because they are really strange of course we're talking <laughs> yeah. about the number one demolition squadron uh, yes yeah or as Le- it became legends yeah. legends <laughs> so these guys just drove around in crazy jeeps uh, talk to us about this because it is a very different army than what you would normally see on the bolt action tabletop yeah similar to the sas in a way but um yeah, yeah they they were i think more a little bit more specialized yeah they did a lot of reconnaissance work but they did raiding work as well uh, and they went deep behind enemy lines, mm-hmm. very deep behind enemy lines. And, and, and when they landed in Italy, they just went on this big, uh, <laughs> this big adventure behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. Just um, yeah, it's pretty crazy when you when you read about. It. There's a few good books about it. one one written by Popsky himself, one written by one of his uh, his, uh, his his officers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's some some very good reading out there about Popsky's private army. So yeah, they and their their morale was extremely high and you mm-hmm. had to be made you had to have guts of iron to 
oh, to yeah. do some of the stuff they did. So mm -hmm. that's why the RTU special rule is there. The um, the teams are, are quite different now. Look, you're not going to fit many guys in the jeep. No, you're not. The, the crews were three, so that's why the infantry squads are only three men. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have the option to combine two squads together, but it does still use up the two slots. Yeah, infantry slots in your force to do that. Uh, but you can make them six men with two NCOs as well, uh, if you wanted to. Um, now, <laughs> so you got their, they've got their own officer, but yeah, the Jeeps. So mm. you got your Jeep that's similar, a little bit different to the SAS Jeep. Okay. But then you've got the Flamethrower Jeep. Yes. <laughs> Which, I mean, clearly there, I mean, a common tactic we've seen on bolt action tabletops over the years particularly on those with the quote-unquote more competitive edge, is people running a flamethrower team in a Jeep. And that is very, quote-unquote, effective. And mm. people often do that, um, but you need to be really careful when using that because um, you usually need to try and get that to go off later in the turn uh, when your opponents burn through most of their dice so that you move the Jeep up, and then with your second activation, you're able to jump the flamethrower team out and light things up. However, in this squad, you have all of that in one dice. And what that uh, means is yeah. you are able to both advance and shoot uh, on the same order dice with a flamethrower in a mobile platform of the Jeep. Now, that's great. Uh, yeah. I think you still have to be a bit careful, too, though, because this thing is a death trap. <laughs> oh, my God, is it ever, right? It, it easily catches fire rules on it. Um, it is an infantry flamethrower, not a vehicle flamethrower. Uh, plus, it has the internal rule. So, yeah, you are going to blow up real fast if anyone shoots you, and this is a soft skin vehicle. So, yes. <laughs> not to be taken lightly, kids. Uh, yes. But again, uh, appropriate. It's evil can evil kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Evil, it's something evil can evil would do, uh, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this 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 actual weapon didn't get past the prototype stage. I think they realized that. Mm -hmm. And you've got guys that are highly trained. You know, valuable assets. You don't want to just waste them. Exactly. In a, in a death trap, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I had to have it in the book. Yeah. You just have to have it because it's so unique, right? So historically, they never used it. Okay, but we're we're playing a game. Exactly. You want something cool like this, and it's cool to be able to play with. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So good. Well, uh, let's um, we can't talk about you know the soft underbelly of Italy without getting into the Axis. Now here see, we see. see another version of the Fallschirmjäger army list. And again, these are different than what you would normally see. And we see different Fallschirm Pioneer squads as well. Um, again, we get the introduction of demolition charges for the Axis side, Bangalore torpedoes as well. Um, but we also see some a really cool new weapon. And there are... Mm earlier versions of these and later versions of these, even though we are, again, still talking about the same six-month time period, the equipment mm. did change over the course of that six months. And so we yes. saw the introduction of Panzerfaust 30. Mm. Now, I have not seen these before. They are really cool if you Google search them, but it's basically a point-blank Panzerfaust, right? Yes. So uh, that's what's interesting about this period. Uh it's kind of like, there was like an infantry weapons revolution going on. Mm -hmm. You had assault rifles and you had um, 
anti-tank, handheld anti-tank weapons. So this process, uh, well, this uh, this period, late 1943, was when all this stuff was evolving and coming out. Now the Italian in the Italian theatre, they got all this stuff later because it was a it was a mm-hmm. sideshow. Let's face it. Exactly. Unfortunately, it's a very interesting theatre of operations. Mm-hmm. But um, why the Germans and the especially the Americans, to a lesser extent the the British, because the Mediterranean was very important to their empire. It was a sideshow. Uh, so they got all this stuff later. Okay, so this is more mainly for the historical play of this aspect. <laughs> I saw another podcast where they were talking about uh, what's the point of this and what's the point of that. Yeah, it's flavor. It's it's flavor. That's what the point is. Exactly, and it um, matches with particular moments in time. Not everyone yes. likes to theme their army to particular no. battles and particular theaters. I do. It's more for the historical play. Yeah, yes. I love that. I love to play, yeah. uh, you know, a fun, uh, I don't want to say competitive because I don't want people to think that I'm necessarily, you know, building lists to kick people's teeth in, but I want a good close game of bolt action. I want to be challenged, but I also yeah. want to theme my force around particular battles and moments in history and having these different squads to line up with those particular conflicts allows me to do that. And I love that. Yeah. And it's, it's it shows you the evolution of, of all these factors exactly, coming into right? play. Yeah. So it's interesting in that way. And if you want to have a Falschenjäger unit that was fighting an all-torner, you can have exactly what they had. Right? Exactly. I've done the research for you. You don't have to do it. Right. And it's different from the forces that fought in Sicily and Salerno, right? Yes, yes. I uh, busted my head trying to figure out <laughs> when exactly. all this stuff came out in Italy. It's very hard to do. So, yeah. But we, um, but we, for those Falsamiager players at home, besides the having, you know, the introduction of the Panzer Faust 30, if you want to play with a more traditional um, Panzer Faust or not Panzer Faust force. Yeah. We do have the introduction of a new Falschmieger officer. Now, it is more expensive yep. than your standard one, uh, and it is slightly different equipped, but you get the NCO apprenticeship rule, which means that these guys give a plus one command bonus to other Falschmieger units. Yep. Now, that's probably not great if you are trying to run a generic uh, German army with one or two Falschmieger units. But for those of you who want to really theme a Fallschirmjäger force, Mm. it's brilliant that you are able to take a Fallschirmjäger officer who has the additional benefit of matching up with other Fallschirmjäger units, giving that extra command bonus. That's awesome. It's quite powerful. Um, I have said this is you know the historical side of things, but these these units are competitive as well. They are they're tough. Like they're expensive, but they're worth they're they're worth the points. Exactly. They're worth the points. Um, now, the officer, the main reason why I I did this, I did the NCO apprenticeship. This is one of the main reasons why the the Falschmager were so just tough. Yeah. They were, t- they were one of the toughest units in the entire war. When it comes to esprit de corps and morale, mm-hmm. they were unbreakable. And this is part of the reason for that. The, uh, the officers had a close relationship with their men. Mm-hmm. Much more, it's more, much more seg- it was much more segregated than other units. Uh, much more division between the officers and the, and the non-commissioned officers and, and, the, uh, and the troops. Okay, and with the Falchim, it was a much closer bond there and they respected their officers highly and the officers had to spend time 
that's that's what that's why it's called the NCO apprenticeship with their men, mm-hmm. and they had to form that bond, and that's why that was just so tough, so amazingly tough. And they, the the Italian theatre of operations, their reputation was really amazing before that, but when it comes to fortitude and toughness, the Italian uh, theatre of operations really demonstrated that when it comes to the Falschmiega. If you look at a casino. Mm-hmm. It's legendary. It's legendary. Well, it's where they got but the reputation. But you look at All Turner of... and some of the operations in late 1943. It's the mm-hmm. same. They, All Turner is like a mini casino, so mm-hmm. you know, like it's, or a mini Stalingrad, because that, the the fashion rate yeah got resisted so effectively and so with such courage. That's yeah. right. That's right. Well, we also see beyond the Falschmjäger. Um, For those of you who have ever wanted to take some Italian tanks in your German army, not the other way around, you are able to take two separate assault guns uh, that have been renamed from the Italian book in your German forces. So you have the Stug M41 and the Stug M42, which you can just use in your generic German forces. Uh, Mm. Now, they are similar to some of the other German assault guns, but again, if you have those rad-looking Italian assault guns, you're able to then put them into German armies. And in some cases, they give you a slightly different flavor as far as having maybe a um, having the HE type of 75-millimeter gun on an assault mm. gun in a German army, which you don't normally get. And mm-hmm. you get the forward-facing super heavy AT gun uh, in the form of the M43, which is super cool as well. So yep. you really do get some great flavor add, and it allows you to add some really great different-looking assault guns to your existing German armies, which is cool, right? Mm. Yeah. One thing I'll say about um, the Italian Front in 1943 is it had a lot of interesting units, a lot of uh, German the German... Um, Army in Italy uh, in 1943 compared to 1944, the quality actually dropped quite a lot. Mm-hmm. In 1943, most of the units were elite Panzer Grenadiers, uh, you know, Panzer troops, Fallschirmjäger. All right, then in 1944, you'd, you'd start getting lower quality troops. T- towards the end of 1943 as well, you started get the, getting more foot slogger troops, mm-hmm. which is more which, which is more suitable for Italy anyway. But they were very green. They were very raw. A lot of them were um, divisions that had been destroyed in Stalingrad and were reconstituted with fresh troops. All right, but um, the equipment in 1943 that the Germans had was quite vanilla in Italy. You had a few, you had a few um, tigers, you know, in in Sicily. They showed up a few times in Italy, mainly, you know, fighting partisans and stuff. But the, the um, yeah the Italian the Italian equipment is what makes it interesting I think because yeah. they just was when the Italians fell they just left all this equipment and the Germans captured all this equipment and they put it to use they definitely put it to use especially some of the newer stuff that was coming off the assembly line in Italy that didn't, they didn't get a chance to use that's right like the uh, M43 see really you wouldn't be able to use that in uh, in an Italian um, army. Army, exactly right. So yeah, you can you can hear, yeah. So and you've got the I, talk, I mentioned before about the revolution in anti tank equipment and handheld anti tank equipment. Mm-hmm. You've got an interesting unit here, the eighty eight millimeter Rakuten Werfer, mm-hmm. which is kind of shows you the 
the um, evolution of that. Okay, so they were using this. They started using this in Tunisia and in North Africa, um, but they still it still held on in, well into 1944. They were still using it well into 1944. So if you want to have a bit of flavour in your army, um, you can definitely use this unit here, yeah. and it's still quite effective. It still has the it has the six plus penetration, and an extended range of 30 inches. So roughly that of a, um, a launching. Yeah, it's it's like a Panzer Shrek on steroids. It's cool. Yeah, it's a bit a bit longer range. Yeah, uh, it has a gun shield, but it's considered artillery. So it's a bit of both. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's a, it's a bit of fun. Now you yep. did mention a lot of elite Panzer Grenadier units in this book and how they appeared in that conflict, and we see that throughout the German selections. Now, obviously, there's a lot more, but as we're running a little bit long on time, I yes. may just mention again we see. And I know they've appeared in other places, but we see those Panzer Grenadier squads that have the motorized infantry yes. squad. We see the just like with the Falschmeger, we see the earlier Italian campaign units and the later Italian unit uh, campaign units because again the the gear changes. Um, yes, but we yes. also see something really cool in the intro introduction of um, the Hermann Göring Division Panzer Grenadier squads for again both the earlier. And the later, um, actually, it's not even later. It's all earlier. But for <laughs> Sicily, the 10th to 12th of July, very yes. specifically. Very, very specific. Yes. Versus <laughs> slightly later in uh, Sicily, more generally, in Salerno. Yes. Um, so some really cool stuff in there. Not to mention we got some great new Shirker units. For those of you who are into that, if you want the inexperienced. But if we're in Italy, we got to go. Italy right now oh, yes. I want to get to the RDTX in a second but if if we don't talk about the destructor group the engineer oh, I thought you were going to say the coastal divisions oh <laughs> uh, you mean the guys who really don't want to be there and might you know it's yeah. the cheapest squad in the game but there's a chance they just run away and go home every time you shoot at them right yeah Oh, we can talk talk about whatever you want first. But yeah. Well, let's. I, I think people will be mad if we don't talk about the engineer demolishers. Yeah. Now, this is the toughest engineer squad in the game, hands yeah. down. You can take them as regular or veteran, but it's a it's a engineer squad that has the opportunity of taking up to two flamethrowers. It's the only unit of its type in the game. But before mm. people start yelling cheese. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, they are super expensive. Mm -hmm. They are loaded with gear and rules, but you're going to be paying through the nose on that. No one's going to be running an army of all of these. So mm -hmm. don't worry if you do play in events, seeing this everywhere. It is an, an Italian unit, but it is very hard as in tough as nails. It's cool. Uh, it's yeah. a great ad for those Italian players. Um, I, I, uh, Rob, talk to us a little bit about these guys because yeah. there's a ton of flavor behind them, and I think people are going to get caught up in the rules, and there's more to them than that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the reason why – there's two reasons why I uh, made the Bangalore Torpedoes Demolition Charges standard. The main one, it's historical. They were a very specialized unit. Mm -hmm. Their main role was to assault fortifications. Right, that was their main role. Yeah. Um, so very specific. But the other thing too was historically they were equipped with two flamethrowers. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have that in. But 
I didn't want this unit to be spammed like nuts yeah, either. Exactly. So that's another reason why I made those things standard. Okay. But in saying that, it does make them very versatile mm-hmm. as well. If you lose your flamethrower, you still got you can still play around with demolition charges, right? So, and yeah, the reason why I divided them up into the support group as well because that's exactly how they were structured. Uh, actually, quite big squads, but they were essentially broken up into those two groups. Um, so yeah, you've got the support group there, which has which well, their role was to back up the assaulters, to pin the pin the enemy down, and support them. While the engineers went in there and just caused havoc. Now those guys have an LMG and a light mortar, and they can split Standard. fire within, right? So they yep. can also uh, just really sort of throw out pins to pin people down while the big squad goes in to try and uh, lay down the flamey goodness or the explosives, right? The funny thing about them, though, too, is uh, if you get near them, they'll fight back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They've got pistols. <laughs> So they've they got pistols. Yeah, which makes you them assault tough them. Fighter. They're going to fight back tenaciously, mm-hmm. and you know you're getting close. They're going to they're going to shoot you, you know, and with those as well. So you're trying to assault them. They, they they've got they've got that defense. It's a, a lot of people see that as a bit weird. That's mm-hmm. how they were equipped. <laughs> very strange, exactly. a very strange unit. So they had the they had their, their their team weapons, but then they had their, they were all equipped with pistols as well. That's right. But that's it. <laughs> right? Exactly, right? Very it's strange. not exactly like they're festooned with SMGs like some units in the game. It's very, very flavorful. Yeah. If you're super competitive, I don't know how effective you think it's going to be, but mate, if you want flavor, it's, it's flavorful. Well, the other thing is if you're looking at it from the quote-unquote competitive perspective, a lot of people just assume that engineer squads are going to be festooned with submachine guns like I just talked about. Mm. Guess what? These guys don't. Yeah. So uh, you, you're paying a lot for basically a rifle squad, but you have the option of taking two flamethrowers in there as well. So it's, it's a specific yeah. tool for yeah. a specific purpose if that's suiting your army, if you're that type of player. You get to blow stuff up, and you get to burn stuff. That's what you get to do. Sounds good to me, man. I think <laughs> I might be adding one of those just because for that reason alone. Uh, but, yeah, just – You get you to know. burn a lot of stuff. Oh, so good. <laughs> Needs, need, might need an Italian flamethrower or two at this point. Um, let's let's move on because the Sahariana AS42 is one of my favorite vehicles in the mm. war. And Warlord makes a gorgeous model for it. And this gives us another way to use it when we talk about the RDTX. Now, these are the, the, the bastardized version is these are kind of like the Italian commandos. They do have their own history. Yeah. They have their own identity. It isn't necessarily fair just to throw that comparison around all the time. But yeah. now you are able to field an army of these guys, and they feel very different than your quote-unquote standard Italian army. Yeah, so um, they ignore a lot, a lot of the negative rules mm-hmm. that the Italians have. And let me just say here, yeah, the, the Italians in Sicily, just they fell apart. So yeah. that's why they do have those negative rules. Now, they do have slightly different rules than the Armies of Italy book, which... Oh, they have some good rules, too. They exactly. Have, yeah. There is a balance um, there. Yeah, so just just quickly about that. Yeah, so we should we should mention that. We should. <laughs> uh, the feed after the feed rule is, is um, entirely negative. But it is, it's not as harsh in some ways as the original rule, which mm-hmm. is based on the Avanti Savoia yeah. uh, rule. 
it's they drop down one level yeah. instead of two the morale so which as been, an italian player i much prefer yeah yeah because you are going to have a lot of cheaper units the one interesting thing uh you can say too though that it doesn't affect inexperienced guys so you can have you could easily have an, an inexperienced horde with the italians yes. especially with that new coastal division unit anyway um, <laughs> whether they mm. stay on the table or not, that is another issue. Yeah, I was going to say, after uh, a couple <laughs> of turns, you might be uh, lacking uh, models if you roll poorly. And But the elite troops are very elite in this as well. Like, yes. um, like so, so the, RD, the RDT ignore, they ignore um, bad officers rule. Mm-hmm. Poor officers, sorry. Poor officers, yeah. Uh, so they totally discard that. And they have the Forza di Anamino rule, which is... Which was wasn't was in the uh, Western Desert book as well. That's right. Okay, which definitely suits them. So the elite units are pretty tough. They're pretty tough units, especially these ones. Um, and the RDT saboteur section. I'm glad you're bringing this up. It's one of my favorite yeah. rules. Yeah. They get they pretty much get the Brandenburg rule, mm-hmm. but it's kind of watered down a bit. It's a bit harder because. They did all these raiding operations, but they weren't that successful. Right. They were still learning. Yes. They, they, the commandos had, you know, if you look at the history of the commando, the British commandos, they had all sorts of disasters mm-hmm. in their earlier operations. So the RDT was, were, were having, in their teething period, they were still learning things. They was, you know, things were still, um, they were still learning how to be saboteurs and, and raiders in a way. Um, so that's why they've got the inexperienced saboteurs rule because they had mixed results with their raids. Yeah. You know? And what that uh, means on the bolt action tabletop is that you have a, a 50-50 chance of making it harder for your opponent to bring mm. units onto the board from reserve. Which, which is still right. <laughs> right? Man, I yeah. wish um, most of my armies had that rule because making, my, make it, making it harder for my opponent to get the squads that they need to get where they need to go that that's yeah. huge again in a game where movement and getting to objectives is so important. Yes, definitely. So yeah, it's still very effective. Um, so and they've got the behind enemy lines, both both the RDD section and the um, saboteur unit have behind enemy lines as well. So they so they bring on reserves more easily, but they uh, affect the enemy's uh, reserves negatively. So, yeah, so it's a big advantage. Your yes. reserves are coming on a lot uh, a lot, uh, a lot, easier, and the, the enemy's reserves are harder to come by. So you can definitely take advantage of that. Now, we did mention the Italians do get new national rules. Uh, if you are playing uh, scenarios slash, uh, you can just use those in generic games as well, um, not just in that. Um, yep, you can replace the normal rules found in the Italy's in the Axis powers with these rules if you want to play a different style of Italian army. But you have thirty pages of theater selectors that people can draw from, which really, again, really gives people interesting new ways to play the game. Uh, it there's just so many great army ideas in here. You have been a bad man for my wallet because I've been <laughs> uh, immediately going, hmm, 
I wonder if I could build an army of that. Uh, Doing my job then, eh? Oh, (laughs) my God. There's some, like, this this book has got my juices flowing in a way that has, eh, maybe, you know, I've been wanting some good bolt action uh, inspiration, and there is a ton of it in here. So, yeah, you've given me some really bad ideas. Now, uh, it should also be said that for those of you who don't have the Battle of the Bulge book, First of all, shame on you. It's one of my favorites. Um, mm. But it, you've included in the generic units for the armies present, you've yeah. included um, the rules so you have them present so people can include units like uh, chaplains and intelligence officers, mule yeah. teams, et cetera, et cetera. They're, um, they're, great, they're great rules, and I right. think they should be in every book, and they should they should be in every reinforced platoon. Exactly. Right. Because people won't use them if they're not in, listed there. Mm-hmm. That's what I've noticed. I never see these on the table, but they should be on the table. They should. Right? So that's really why I wanted to do this. So they use more. We want to see a bit more variety on the table, right? Exactly, right? Um, yeah. And uh, yes, we should talk about the Naval Observer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this this is um, uh, an offshoot from uh, the D-Day book, mm-hmm. which I got a lot of feedback on. A yeah. lot of feedback on. This is quite a controversial unit. It is. Because it can have a huge impact. So I've actually made, I've modified it and I've repointed it. For something that can just totally turn a game. Yeah. I've made it really expensive. Yes, and it is. Uh, and But it could be a total waste of points because if it, if it gets shot by a sniper, you've wasted 200 points, right? Mm-hmm. So, but if it comes on, it's devastating. It's pretty, it's devastating. Exactly. But I've actually modified those rules as well. Yeah, I was going to say it's toned down. It's toned down. I have toned them down as well. So, uh, cost is 180 for regular, 195 for veteran. British can upgrade their forward artillery observer for plus 80 points. Mm -hmm. Big change is... The tank flipping thing, right? Yeah, that's that's the controversial <laughs> one that everyone's talking about. That's right. So to to be able to do that, you need to roll a six now. Yeah. Not just a five or a six. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I really, when I first designed those rules, I was really enthusiastic about this. I thought it was really cool, and it is cool. It is cool, right? But it shouldn't it shouldn't be yeah one one and three. It should be a lot higher. Yeah. Than that. So <laughs> so that's been changed because yeah. We're talking about extremely high-caliber uh, naval artillery here that did the, have the power to, f- to flip over Tiger tanks. Yeah, exactly. Right? So you want that in the game, right? You want to be able to flip over a Tiger tank. So it's still in there, but it's it's less likely. So when it actually does happen, it's really cool, right? Yeah, <laughs> when, when people started banning them from you know, tournaments and stuff, I said, okay, yeah. Time, time to look at these again. But Look, let's 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 fix this thing. This thing is yeah, exactly. not loved. <laughs> um, yeah, and the thing too. Let me just clarify something. Yeah. It's a generic rule, but it actually has to be mentioned in the reinforced platoon for you to be able to use it. Okay, so it's just it's not available in any generic list. Okay, from the armies of books and all that kind of stuff. It actually has to be mentioned in in a theater selector. To be able to take it, right? So the other the other generic uh, units in here, they're pretty much in all in all of the uh, reinforced platoons. They're available in pretty much all of them, okay? Because they were standard standard uh, troops that 
people had in their had in their armies. So different nations had in their armies. Yeah. So they should be made. They should be available. They should be able to be taken. I think. Yeah. Mark Barber did a fantastic job with those rules. So mm-hmm. they they definitely should be used more. I think. Yeah. Agreed. Well, Rob, I'm sorry to say, I think our time is up. I think we're actually probably <clears throat> twice as long as we should have run today. But I think that just speaks volumes about how much is in this book. Again, we're talking about a book that's 176 pages. This thing has some serious heft to it, and there is so much great content. We could talk about the history. We could talk about the missions, the history behind the missions, the units that are in it. Again, 30 pages of theater selectors and um specific rules about how to make your army different than just the standard reinforced platoon that we all know and love in a bolt action as it is there is just so much great content in this book we could literally talk for hours i mean we just scratched the surface of each of the things i talked about Mm. and we're at almost two hours if you are into bolt action if you are looking for some inspiration if you play those four armies or even if you don't there's so much great content in the uh, the Soft Underbelly book. I cannot recommend it enough. Rob, thank you again for all of your hard work in putting this together. I know that you like to put together a highly detailed product and that you know your stuff, and that has been evident in our conversation today, man. So thank you again for taking the time, and thank you for making this book. Thank you, Brad. Uh, I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it quite a lot, talking to you about it. So... And it's good to um, just, just clarify a few things as well yeah. about it. Because I think there there has been a bit of a misconception that this book just covers the entire Italian campaign. It covers the the first first six months. And, um, yeah, so I wanted to split it that way because, you know, I wanted to end it before the big battles of Anzio and Casino. Yes. Which, which dominated... The latter part of the uh, the campaign itself. Now, now, I don't want to get into spoilers because I know you're not allowed to talk about a lot of things. But you do mention in the introduction of the book that there will be more to come. This is the, a prelude to the rest of the Italian campaign. And as a as someone who desperately wants to play the battles around Casino on the table, mm. I know we have a mission already in one of the books. Don't yell at me. I know I've played it. I want more, and I can't yeah. wait to see the Rob Villa detailed dig into that <laughs> conflict it's going to be rad i can't wait uh my own worst enemy man too much detail <laughs> i'll get bogged into it then hey, i have to I, then i, I have to sweep all the detail away and try and you know bring it back to reality <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. well again right. brother thank you for your time it is always awesome having you on and i can't wait to talk the rest of the italian campaign with you at some point in the future excellent look forward to it Guys, thank you so much for listening today. I know there has been a break, as I said at the beginning, in the Warlord Games podcast. We will be back very soon with more content. You can find this podcast and and the regular uh, cast dice uh, bolt action content, and there's been a lot of it recently uh, on this podcast network. If you go to any of your podcatching sources, it is cast dice, C A. S-T-D-I-C-E. If you go to the Facebook page for Cast Dice and you message it with feedback for this show, um, that is the overall podcast page for this podcast network. My name is Brad. Hello. I will respond to your feedback. If you have uh, particular shows or topics that you would like me to cover 
on this uh, podcast, please message and let me know what you think. If there's a particular part of this book or others that you would like me to lean into, please, again, let me know. And thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And please check out Warlord Games' other social media. They have some great content on Discord and on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the Warlord Games official podcast today. Good night. 